Welcome to Ag This Week, sponsored by the New Mexico Farm and Livestock Bureau. This is your host, Delene Hodnett. This week's podcast features an on-the-ground report from the state veterinarian regarding a bird flu, a program specialist with the Chili Pepper Institute, a reflection from a young chili farmer, and we wrap up with a look to the next generation with a soon-to-be graduating county extension agent. Dr. Ralph Zimmerman is the New Mexico State Veterinarian, and he joins us today for an overview of the HPAI pandemic sweeping through commercial chicken flocks. Thank you, Dr. Zimmerman, for coming on. I read the other day that they have had to cull 27 million chickens and turkeys in 26 states because of HPAI. Tell us about highly pathogenic avian influenza, the symptoms, and how it spreads. Well, highly pathogenic is the key phrase. Uh, It's a type A avian influenza virus. This strain that's going around now is H5N1, and those refer to two proteins that there's multiple varieties, and that's how they identify it. Some are far more pathogenic than others, and some of them are low pathogenicity in that you can have birds that have it and show no symptoms at all. This year, the outbreak, uh, initially back in January, they were testing birds on the flyways, ducks and geese, and they were picking up the Eurasian strain of high-pass AI uh, H5N1 in the wild birds. And then the outbreaks in the domestic animals started shortly thereafter in early February, exposure of the wild birds two domestic birds, and that's where the passage has been. The transmission has been from bird-to-bird contact. Some of the wild birds show no symptoms at all. It doesn't affect them. Some do. There's been reports of snow geese literally staggering around on, in parks, uh, falling out of the air so weak from flying, things like that. But a lot of the ducks show no symptoms at all, so you don't see a sick bird necessarily. But when it hits chickens and turkeys in particular with this strain, you'll see a lot of sick birds rapidly. Things that you might see in some of the flocks is sudden death in a higher number of birds than normal. It's been detected both in backyard flocks and in commercial flocks in most of the affected states. One of the things I discussed early on in the break was that the producers were noticing a decrease in water intake and then shortly thereafter, they'd start to see symptoms in the birds. So decrease in water intake, decrease in feed intake, sudden deaths. Uh, you may see lethargy, respiratory distress, nasal discharge, and then a lot of the birds may show a discoloration around the legs and the head, the comb, and obviously a drop in egg production in the affected birds, and you may see diarrhea as well. Is it transmitted through the eggs, Dr. Zimmerman? Is that something we need to be concerned about, is the egg supply? The, no, and and eggs from affected states at this point are being permitted out. So uh, they're they're paying attention to it, and eggs aren't a concern other than the fact that they're going to be much more expensive because the number of laying flocks that have been destroyed. What do we do with those destroyed birds, Dr. Zimmerman? What happens with a mass casualty event like this? They are using composting. The last outbreak, they did a lot of disposal, either burying them or 
burying them in landfills. And uh, if compost piles reach the appropriate temperature, it will deactivate the virus and then that the compost can actually be used. But it's got to go through several cycles and turns. And a lot of the places are composting within the houses. And then when they move the compost out, then they go through and they do environmental testing to make sure that they're free of the virus in the houses before they can start their, their disinfection and cleaning process. Do you foresee that New Mexico flocks are in danger? I mean, we don't have a lot of commercial, but we have some backyard, and then we have, of course, wild flocks, wild birds. Fortunately, we have very few commercial, but you're right, there's backyard flocks all over the state. There's been one pheasant flock in Texas that was diagnosed. I'm having false hope that our birds migrated sooner than some of these other birds. And if you look at a map of the affected states, there's kind of a belt across the southeast and down into the southwest of unaffected states. And the affected states are further north and on the flyways. Colorado is an affected state. Most of those have been in the center of the state, but we may have a positive backyard flock right across the border in Durango. That being the case, it's more of a concern. This outbreak is almost completely passed by the wild birds disseminating from flock to flock, where the virus is highly infectious and we can act as fomites in carrying the virus on us, on our shoes, on our clothing, on our vehicles. In outbreaks in the past, it was actually people movement spreading the virus. There's a few cases they're investigating to see if it was movement other than birds, but so far the word is that it's all wild bird movement infecting the domestic birds. To that end, I saw some advice this morning on the news that people should not be feeding wild birds. Would you recommend that people stop doing that so that wild birds don't congregate? Yes, wild bird feeders, bird baths, anything that's going to attract more birds. They've done some testing on some of the Tweety bird species, and some of them can be infected and can't spread it. So better to play it safe and not attract any more birds. If they've got poultry, they really ought to work on keeping more birds away, closing up their coops, keeping their poultry birds away from wild birds. If you've got a pond, get your domestic ducks off of there if you get visited by wild ducks and just keeping the two separate to minimize spread. Not visiting other poultry flocks while this is going on, not having people come and visit and see your birds, just minimizing traffic to and from to, to avoid spreading it. So that's great advice. What do you foresee in terms of our fair season and 4-H and FFA kiddos with their poultry projects? Do you think that those are going to be curtailed this year to prevent the spread? It's still a possibility because we have not had a case yet. I'm not heading that way, but if we end up breaking with it in backyard flocks, then we'll definitely have to look at that. I would recommend that the fair boards, you know, a lot of them will have an open show, so they may, if you're on the east side of the state, it's kind of porous between Texas and New Mexico, and I would recommend not moving birds from state to state for shows and exhibitions just to minimize the chance of spread. 
I would like to think we're not going to get it, but we'll revisit fairs and, and other shows in New Mexico if we end up breaking with it. A lot of the states are canceling shows, exhibitions, swaps, and just limiting movement of poultry altogether. Is there something I should have asked you, something I left out? There's always uh, some concern of human health issues with bird flu. And in this particular strain, we have not seen cases in people, with folks working the big poultry farms, anybody with backyard birds, we've not seen any, any zoonotic movement from, from the birds to people. So this one seems to be relatively safe as far as human involvement. Thank you, Dr. Zimmerman. Let's hope New Mexico is spared from this deadly disease. Next with us is Lisa Lopez of the Chili Pepper Institute. Lisa, tell us about the home of All Things Chili. I am a program specialist here at the Chili Pepper Institute. I've been here for going on two years. The Chili Pepper Institute is an international organization and nonprofit. We're devoted to education, research, and information related to chili peppers. We were established in 1992 by Dr. Paul Bosland, who was our chili breeder at the time. He has since retired. He was uh, getting a lot of questions regarding the seeds that we produced could be purchased, uh, questions regarding growing peppers, pepper diseases, that sort of thing. We've developed a number of varieties of peppers. Any pepper plant that you see out there that starts with Numex, N-U-M-E-X, those were all pepper varieties that were developed here. So here at the Institute shop, we carry almost all of the varieties that were developed here, as well as information related to growing, books, recipes, all kinds of things for people. It's a one-stop shop for chili. We have an annual plant sale, and we have it at the Fabian Garcia Research Center at 113 West University Avenue. We're going to do it April 21st and 22nd, which is Thursday and Friday. We start at 9, and we'll keep going until we sell out. It's a very popular sale, so we do anticipate a big turnout. Our students and our staff have grown chili peppers, of course, so we'll have a number of varieties available. Um, jalapenos, lots of Numex varieties, um, Numex uh, Heritage Big Jim, Numex Heritage 6-4, Sandia Select, um, and we'll have a few super hot varieties too, uh, like Buchalokia, Trinidad Maruga Scorpion. We are also working uh, as a collaboration with the New Mexico State University Horticulture Forum. It's a group of students, and they grew some really nice herbs for the sale. So we'll have basil and thyme. I imagine one of the advantages of getting your chili from the Chili Pepper Institute for your garden is that those particular varieties have been tested in New Mexico and survive our conditions well. Yes, it is. That That is the reason. And there were varieties, that, many of them that were developed at New Mexico State University. We have a teaching garden that we plant out every year at Fabian Garcia. Uh, we have a different theme every year. We're still working on the theme this year. Last year's theme was peppers around the world, and we had peppers A to Z, and we had over 150 varieties of peppers growing out there. Uh, we have a map 
so it's open to the public and they can self-tour or they can, by request, have a guided tour if they call us in advance. We've given tours to school kids and you can wander out around all the different varieties of peppers. We're also involved in research, chili pepper research. We are a part of plant and environmental sciences here at New Mexico State University. We're part of the chili pepper breeding and genetics program here. So there is ongoing research um, for disease resistance, drought tolerance, higher nutritional values in chili peppers, and varieties are being, being developed. Thanks, Lisa. For more information or to shop the Institute's offerings, search online for NMSU Chili Pepper Institute. With us next is Jamie Vitamontes, Region 4 Representative for New Mexico Farm and Livestock Bureau's Young Farmers and Ranchers Program. Jamie and her husband Cole are chili, onion, and watermelon farmers and own Red Mountain Produce near Dimming. Jamie, tell us about your experience being a young agriculturalist. My name is Jamie Baramontes, and my husband and I live on his third-generation family farm. I didn't necessarily come from a farming background, but I had an appreciation for agriculture at a very young age. I was always very active in both FFA and 4-H, showing livestock, and we have a small hobby ranch that's been in my family for several generations. I would say I was pretty familiar with agriculture, but I didn't realize how intense the agriculture industry was until I started living on the farm. I think agriculture is something that you have to have a very strong passion for, and I don't see that always being incentivized in the youth these days. And I think that organizations like 4-H and FFA are really great to start sparking that desire for them. But the reality of it is, is that farming is very high risk, and that doesn't always lead to a high reward. Living in a rural area can feel very isolating, and especially at a younger age, that can be hard for people. I also think that the jobs are not typically incentivized. You don't get a bonus for starting your own farm. <laughs> and there's a lot of very stressful situations that can be difficult to manage. And I think that that's, especially these days, we're starting to see less people come back to the farm for those reasons. So what are some of the barriers of younger people getting into agriculture? What do you see as possible solutions to overcome them? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of barriers when it comes to trying to enter the ag industry and farming and ranching in particular. I remember when I was in college, I had a professor who we had to do a project where we brought in different scenarios of entering a farm or a ranching operation, and it was either you marry into it, you inherit it, or you try and buy into it on your own. And we did all this different mock-up and each of us had these different scenarios and different instances. And it was so sad to see that the only way to really see a return on your investment and to really make any money was to either marry into it or inherit it. I think financing options are really, really hard. It's difficult to secure financing because there's so many different uncontrollables and risks. And then when you look into the equipment, the land, all the cost of your seed, your chemicals, and you're incurring all this cost before you see any revenue, it makes it really difficult. And then on top of that, there's unstable markets, you know, especially in the farming industry and produce in particular. You don't know what those markets are going to look like when it's time to harvest and you put all this money into a crop and that can be really scary and that can be a huge 
barrier when you're looking for lending opportunities. On top of that, we're facing a lot of foreign competition right now affecting those markets. You see a lot of produce coming in at lower prices. And so then it's scary to jump in. And I think that is a huge barrier for people who are trying to enter into the industry and trying to find their way within in the farming industry, at least. Really, honestly, a lot of The FSA and the government have done a really good job in trying to incentivize young farmers and help them get on their feet. But I think, too, the ag program at New Mexico State and different colleges have done a really good job in teaching farm management courses so that young people are really familiar and ready to take on that market because managing a farm isn't just about planting the crops. And it's a whole different business side that you really have to learn and familiarize yourself with. I think the rewards of being in an agriculture family are are just that it's a beautiful way of life. Farming is a legacy and it's something as a family that through generations you can be really proud of. Farming really teaches great life lessons about how to be grateful, how to appreciate what you have and You know, there's a certain sense of pride that you get knowing that you're growing food for the population. Thanks, Jamie. For this week's Look to the Next Generation, we're featuring Savannah Graves, the Extension and 4-H agent in Hidalgo County. She'll graduate with her master's degree in May. Savannah, tell us about your career choice. Hi, my name is Savannah Graves, and I am the Hidalgo County Program Director and a 4-H and Ag Agent. I am wrapping up with my master's degree in May and I'm excited to be doing what I do. So I went into agriculture education because one, I was a 4-H and FFA kid growing up. I showed livestock all over the country. I competed in shooting sports. I judged all over the place. I went to multiple national events and I just absolutely loved it. I was very active in leadership in different levels. And as I got older, I really enjoyed giving back to the program. And so when I went into college, I stayed with what I knew and went into the accident department. As I grew through it, I realized that was really the niche for me. I got hired on as an extension agent in 2019 and loved it within the first month. Every day is completely different. And that's one thing I really like about it. I love being able to work with different groups of people in their areas of passion and what they are interested in. It really helps when somebody really likes what they're doing. And as an extension agent, I really like being a lifelong learner. Every day is different and I learn so many different skills and techniques and ideas as I go through this job. So it's really cool the things I get to learn alongside with my clientele. And why Extension Matters? Extension Matters because we provide services to our community and what they need. And what's really neat about Extension is the needs of Hildago County are different than the needs of Doniana County or Bernalillo County or Colfax County. Everyone has a different community and what they need is very different. And why it matters is because Extension serves different purposes. I mean, in youth, we help youth with personal growth and lifelong skills. And then we move into different areas of like adult type programming. And we help people live a healthier life and a more successful life. And we also help people learn new skills and techniques to update their operations and maintain their livelihood and become more successful. And ultimately, Extension is advocating for agriculture and helping it keep 
it alive. But doing this for ag, it also introduces new ideas and skills to a diverse group of individuals from our old school producers to our urban communities and incorporating everybody all in one. Thanks, Savannah. This has been Delene Hodnett with New Mexico Farm and Livestock Bureau's Ag This Week.